What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have Kim Howerton on the line, aka The Ketonist, and she's going to dive into a pretty broad range of things, I'm, I'm assuming. We're going to dive into the, the conversation here and just see where it takes us. She just came down with a cold, so if she sneezes on the recording, I'm just rolling with it. I'm not even going to block that out in the editing, so beware, Kim. How are you, Kim? I'm doing pretty good. I just got a little sniffles, a little, little winter sniffles. sniffle. Yeah. I thought you're not supposed to get sick when you're on keto. I know, right? You're not supposed to get sick at all. Um, You know, before keto, I would get sick somewhere in the neighborhood of like four times a year. Um, And now I get sick at most once a year and it's pretty... It's just a sniffle. The, my issue is I'm very tactile, so I touch everything. And then my boyfriend's yeah. always like, stop touching things. You're going to get... And then I get a cold. So it does. It does happen. He's right. It is. It is strange. Like I, um, we're totally going off on tangent now, but it just works. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I used to. I, I never get sick anyways. Like I've literally been sick twice my entire life, and so I don't. Okay. I can't really go back and say you know I used to get sick all the time before I was keto. But it does seem that everybody that I've talked to that that used to be more sickly before keto yeah. tends to get sick much less now they are keto. And I don't know if that just is resulting from an improvement in the immune system or what. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that when I used to get sick, every time I had a cold, it would turn into a sinus infection that would turn into bronchitis. And it would be like literally like six weeks of sick. And mm -hmm. now like if I get a sniffle, I sneeze a little more than normal. I'm, I, I sometimes am a little loopy, you know, but that's, I'm a little ditzy anyway. So that's, that's normal. And, uh, and it's like just no big deal. And it's, it's funny because so many things for so many of us, when we go keto, we're like, oh, I think this is how other people were. Like, you know, when you see people that like a cold was a no big deal or like, yeah, I don't know, yeah. I, I just always felt so different. I felt so like sickly and ill equipped for life. And now I'm like, oh, this is fine. No big deal. Yeah. Now you're superhuman, more or less. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that. Dive into uh, what brings you in the space. We had that recording that we did when we were at uh, Ken Berry's house, and yeah. a lot of people hadn't heard of you before, or they were there messaging. Yeah. I was reading the comments, and they were like, who is this Kim Howerton? She seems to know her stuff. So bring us up to speed and just kind of tell the audience, you know, who is Kim Howerton? Who is Kim That is a very deep question, Robert Sykes. Um, no, I am a 42-year-old woman, so not a, not a spring chicken, but I um, have been keto for about two and a half years at this point. Um, and I had spent my life um, kind of as somebody that had decided to tackle everything and be like, I was a life coach. I was like, I'm going to optimize a lot of things. But I had actually like completely given up hope that I would ever be in charge of my weight or really my health, honestly. Um, I had been dealing with what I now know are definite signs of carbohydrate intolerance, um, but weight issues from the time I was about nine, which is also the time in which like I sort of got a huge flood of hormones. I grew a bunch of inches, but I in all directions, basically. And I looked by the time I was 10, I looked for the most part like a baby faced adult. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and a chubby one at that. And so from that point on, uh, you know, I really struggled with my weight. 
Um, but at some point I sort of said, you know what, I'm just gonna, I just have to accept I'm going to be a fat person. I'm going to have to just accept that that is not necessarily, you know, the worst thing that could be happening and get everything else in my life in order and accept and love myself, which I'm actually I'm really glad that I went on that journey and did. But, you know, as I was approaching my forties, I stopped and I was like, look, this isn't just about how I look in a bikini or, you know, whether people want to date me or not. This is about um, the fact that I am going to die sooner and more painfully than I want to. Um, because at that point, um, I had, you know, on and off tried a bunch of different approaches to eating. And I had lost weight at a few junctures, but I never kept it off. And to me, the sign of a successful approach to eating really isn't about whether or not you lose weight, but about what happens after you lose the weight. Does it immediately rebound or, you know, does it, does it come back? Um, this is going to be a very long intro. Sorry about that. No, uh, I like it. I like it. <laughs> and, um, and so I was like, well, I hadn't ever been successful, basically. Yes, I'd lost some weight, but always come back. And I was like, no more. Like, I just kind of put a, you know, what do they call it? I put a stake in the ground. I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. I need to actually figure out why I keep getting bigger, why my blood sugar is getting out of control. I wasn't yet diabetic, but like, we don't have any diabetics in my family, even of the heavy people. So you got to figure that our pancreases are for some reason superhuman. However, I was borderline pre-diabetic, I was definitely getting there. My blood sugar was going up by a good like couple of points a, a year, you know, and and that was so that was a, a losing game. And I was gaining weight every year. I was, you know, it was just it was just it was getting out of control. And I was a food addict like that needed to be addressed regardless of what my body looked like. And um and I also had a bunch of lifelong health problems. Like I said, I was kind of sickly. Like I had my first surgery when I was five years old. Um, I had uh, thyroid issues. Uh, I had PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian condition oh, syndrome. They changed it at some point in my life, and I always say the wrong thing. Um, but yeah. it's basically, you know, issues with with your uh, with, with your ovaries, but other things like it, it's kind of often considered sort of the female hormone uh, pre diabetes, you know, diabetes kind of issue. It's definitely insulin related. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I had all these issues and I ha and I hadn't put the pieces together. They all had a similar underlying root cause because I'd never really heard much about insulin. And then um, shortly before I was about to turn 40 and I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't spend the second half of my life the way I have spent the first, which is kind of la-di-da, trying to ignore these things, trying to seek pleasure to cover up, you know, that I don't feel great. Um, I was like, I actually have to address these things. I have to finally, it's maybe it's time to be a grown up and like address my life. And um, so I had read Gary Taub's Good Calories, Bad Calories. I, I understood, well, some of the science. I understood the basic science of it. Um, I understood what was probably going on. And I understood that I needed to make a significant change from my daily Starbucks pastry frappuccino habit um, and, you know, and fast food. And, and I am a foodie. 
right? I live in the Bay Area in California, which it's considered a foodie city, which means just basically people who love food and are kind of snooty about it. And so I loved all of that, you know, food stuff. And I didn't want to lose that, that love of like good flavors and good foods. And so when I found keto, which I found out about, I'd read Good Calories, Bad Calories, but that book doesn't actually mention keto specifically. But then when I was listening to a podcast with the first one I listened to that mentioned it that I remember is, uh, uh, oh, not Dom. Dom Diagostino was the second one I listened to, but I listened to a Tim Ferriss podcast with uh, Peter Atia. And so mm -hmm. those two exposures to hearing about keto and then putting that together with what I knew from some of the reading I've done, I was like, oh, I think I can make this work for me instead of trying to make me fit in somebody else's framework. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I think it's interesting you say that because those are actually the very two podcasts I listened to first and second <laughs> in that order. And that yeah. was kind of like the catapulting factor for me. And then I just totally reverse engineered the way I look at nutrition since then. But we came from, you know, two, two separate spectrums. I mean, <laughs> different, but it's cool because we came from these two different spectrums. Um, but we both were unhappy with where we're at. And then found keto on the same page there. And that's just had a compounding effect on our health and, you know, just performance and life optimization going forward. Um, so, so what, what exactly changed, you know, after that, was it like a, like a steady progression kind of you figuring out the diet, you know, slowly or well, did you just jump, you know, head over heels into it and learn pretty quick? Well, I did have a few false starts because you might notice uh, Dom D'Agostino and Peter Atia being very, very athletic men, right? Uh, I am neither male nor athletic. Um, and so the way that they were approaching keto, which was, and the way that I had heard about keto when I looked into it was very much like 50 grams of carbs. Um, I mean, that was the biggest one that they they had both mentioned at some point, 50 grams of carbs. Or when I looked up keto at that point, and this was before keto was big, um, it was it was 50 grams of carbs and and kind of like how to eat and what to eat. And and I tried a bunch of those approaches and they, I was like, uh, it sort of felt like I was treading water. Like I was like, I'm not getting any traction here and I don't feel that different. And what I what I then kind of started doing more research and more reading and get everything I could get my hands on. And what about this? And what about that? And um, I started, I, I got a, I heard about getting a, a, a tester for your beta hydroxybutyrate. Um, I got a, a tester for that. I started testing. I was like, oh, I'm not in ketosis at 50 grams of total carbs. I have to go lower. And so I started trying 20 and trash. So I am, I, I am a hedonist. I love to feel good. I love things that feel good. But I'm also sort of like, I'm not, not that smart, but I'm very like intellectual in that I like to learn about things and I like to research things and, and I like to problem solve. And mm -hmm. I, that's part of what I love about keto. It's very much a problem solving approach. Like, huh, I'm not in ketosis. Why am I not in ketosis? Well, most likely it's because of how many carbs I'm eating. How many carbs am I eating? Can I do net carbs? Do I have to do total carbs? How does this sweetener affect me? So I just really dove in really deep into how to make keto work for me with a lot of experimentation. And within a cup, I would say within about six weeks of that, I was like off to the races, knew what, like 
you know, obviously there's always something to learn, but I at least knew on a beginner level how keto worked best for my body. Gotcha, gotcha. And then did you start seeing pretty profound changes in your body once you kind of started hitting on all eight cylinders and, and dropped your carbs down? Yeah, yeah. Once I really got into it and was like, okay, I'm doing this. I, um, it was, I, so I had, after all the first false starts, wow, that's hard to say, false starts. Um, I, uh, I, it was like May of, of 2016 at that point. And I was like, okay, I'm just doing this. I'm doing this. I'm going in. I'm, I'm, there's no turning back. And I just started again. And I was doing 20 carbs or under a day. Now there were a couple days early on, like when I, you know, when I was like, wait, that was way over, but then I fixed it. You know, I was always just tracking everything at the time, just on a spreadsheet uh, and looking things up on the internet. I wasn't, I didn't even know there were apps yet, you know, and I, but I tracked everything that I ate and really dialed it in. And so that first week I dropped that normal kind of five pounds of water weight. Mm -hmm. And pretty much from that point forward for my first year, I consistently was losing weight without what I would call a lot of effort. Now, I, you know, not being super young, being female, having been overweight for three decades, um, I would not say I was a quick loser, but I was, and I wasn't, you know, like everyone, nobody's, nobody's uh, weight loss line looks like a diagonal. It was lumpy, you know, but it was, it was progressing in the right direction for me every day um, or not every day, but every, you know, on a, on a weekly to monthly basis. Right. What, um, what, what do you think are some other things that you learned besides like the, the carb? Because I mean, as you dig deeper, you, you yeah. start to really kind of fine tune what's working for you and, and not, and everybody's going to be individual, but like some of the, the, you know, fine tuning questions, like what about dairy? Sure. What about nuts? Like how's, how did that impact you? Well, you know, what's interesting is that first year of keto, I was fine with dairy. As far as I knew, I was seemed fine using sweeteners like erythritol. Um, but by the way, that, that first year, I didn't count erythritol because it didn't seem to have an impact. So I would net erythritol, but total everything else. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then I would still lose weight if I included some nuts. I would do sweeteners. I would do, you know, treats and baked goods. And But keeping my – so you can't go too crazy. You can't do two nuts with nuts if you're counting total carbs. But right. I was including them in small quantities. Um and then I hit a point about a year in. I'd lost about 60-ish pounds at that point. Um, I had gone from what I considered in my sort of framework from a very, like, overweight person to an average overweight person. <laughs> um, like, and which was, I was like, oh, I think this is how everyone feels. Um, and then I hit a wall and just stopped losing weight. Um, and And it wasn't. Because I, you know, I have these conversations with people all the time. Like maybe this is just where your body wants to be, and um, you know, not everyone is going to be a fitness competitor. And uh, but if that's your goal, you have to take other steps, right? But I was like, I'm st my body fat percentage is still more than I'd like it to be. You know, what am I going to do here? Because I'm, I do, I like, I'm, I'm definitely of the school. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So if mm -hmm. I was happy with my life experience and I was happy with the results I was seeing, I'm like, I'm fine here. I'm fine doing what I'm doing. So, but at that point, I stopped being fine when I was like, I still really want to lose a little bit more weight and I am not seeing super uh, results here. So I went on a journey 
of of looking at it. I looked at how much fat was I eating? Was I eating too much fat? Because, you know, at that point there there had been a sort of an emergence of people saying, if you eat too much fat, you're not going to lose your body fat, oxidative priority, blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, well, let me listen to these people. Let me try that. And so I tried that and I tried this other thing and I tried no dairy and I tried no nuts and I tried no sweetener. And, you know, I went through all these different things. And, you know, ultimately there was no real lasting change from many things I tried until I realized that maybe I needed to drop the carbs even more. So, um, and I'm not saying some of those approaches don't work. Like all of those approaches work for someone, right? An right. approach wouldn't be a publicized approach if it didn't work for anyone. Um, that that being said, not every approach works for every person. And so um, what I ended up doing was finding that when I went carnivore, um, which for me looked like mostly eating meat, mostly beef, um, a little bit of egg here and there seemed to be okay, and maybe a very small amount of cheese, but not regularly. Um, butter seemed okay. When I dialed it back to that, I started losing weight again and pretty quickly. And so, you know, the the downside of that approach, though I actually really enjoy it, and, and when I get into it, I really uh, find it consistently pleasurable, is um, I create recipes for people. Part of the thing that I do is create recipes and um, and so occasionally I'll switch back and forth between, you know, eating more of a traditional keto approach so that I can create food plans for clients and try out new recipes. Um, but for me, one of the amazing things about keto is one, it's like once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you see the change you can make in your body, and then if you want to make changes in your body, like I'd, I'm not satisfied being like, well, I'll just accept this is what is. I'm like, no, what else can I do? What else can I do, right? It's kind of like this uh, this progression of, of human and self-optimization, I guess is the best way to put it. But like when you when you first start the diet and, you know, you look at the standard American's diet and they're just, you know, eating crap, junk food, you know, fast food, no focus towards, you know, nutritional density or any of that. So they get on a sloppy keto approach and they're still way, way ahead of what they were formerly eating. So their body's going to respond, you know, in the right direction. Everything's going to improve. They're going to feel better. They're going to lose weight. And then that, that's going to be just great for them. But then eventually they're going to come to that plateau point in which their body's going to basically, you know, reach that equalization and find its homeostatic point. And it's not going to change until you change something else. And, you know, for you that was dropping the carbs even further. But I'm always curious, you know, what was that, that, that point at which is at which your body's going to change and be different for everybody based off of their experience, their history, and kind of how their bodies become used to its surroundings um, because the body's smart. So I'm curious, you right. know, for you going carnivore, there's basically no more carbs to remove, so to speak. So yeah. what, <laughs> what do you do now? What next? Right. So here's the the deal. You know, I try and be really honest. Like I haven't maintained 100% carnivore for longer than a month, right? And so I haven't gotten to that point where like is this thing on? You know, like has this thing stopped working? I haven't mm -hmm. yet hit that crisis point with with carnivore. Um, you know, I do think eventually your body gets used to 
anything. I mean, so I didn't mention this in introducing myself because I was talking about other things, but you know, I coach people on keto, especially people like me, people who are um, food lovers, you know, want to make it work for their lifestyle, um, are not necessarily no pain, no gain people, right? Like, how do I make mm-hmm. this work for me? Um, and, you know, one of those things is you can't, uh, that I have to teach myself and like, you know, because I like to be, com- everyone wants to be complacent. It wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't go there and you know what I mean? Like it feels good. It's comfortable. Um, but it, it's not where results happen. And so, you know, I have to challenge myself and, and so going carnivore is a challenge for me and I do it and it's pleasurable, but then I'm like, you know, I have those other things. It's funny. I, ex- I never experienced the thing people talk about going keto where they're like, it's so hard to be keto. All my friends are eating other things and, you know, it's, I can't go to the, out to dinner and, you know, all these things. I'm like, huh, I never really had that experience. Like that wasn't hard for me at all. But, but going carnivore now I'm like, oh yeah, I get what they're saying. <laughs> like yeah. it is kind of harder to go out and it is kind of harder to be social and you kind of do want some chocolate, you know? And, um, and so, but it's good. Embracing hard things is what makes us, you know, great. And so I'm, I'm trying to welcome these challenges. Um, you know, occasionally they make me grumpy, but I, you know, I, you need to occasionally get grumpy about things or else you will stagnate. And so when, when carnivore, when my body gets used to carnivore and it, it stops responding, you know, I'm not sure what's going to happen at that point. Um, certainly, one of the things that has been happening and, and it will be increasing is my working out because I was not working out for my first year of keto and I've been intermittently working out since then. But it's definitely something that's ramping up in the new year a lot. Um, and then the other thing is maybe I'll need to go back to keto for a while and do that sort of without a focus on weight loss for a while and then go back to carnivore. Because one of the things I have found in my clients and in myself is um, squeezing harder and harder and harder on the, the, the diet handle. I don't know. I have that analogy was weird, but you know, you kind of like, <laughs> you're trying to get, like squeeze more juice out of the dieting approach. And it's, it's a zero sum game at some point. You, you can only you can only drop your fat so low. You can only eat so little before you really are experiencing, you know, negative repercussions and a negatively impacted metabolism. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, you know, it might be advantageous even that you that you don't stay carnivore for more than a month at a time because, you know, I look at, you know, switching in and out of carnivore similar to how I look at, you know, switching for me, uh, from a contest prep standpoint and a caloric deficit to, you know, a building phase and I'm in a caloric surplus, like giving your body both ends of the spectrum seems to, you know, prevent it from becoming stagnant. It's always forcing an adaptation and keeping the body guessing and, and keeping it moving. Um, some yeah. people probably have that same approach towards, you know, being strict keto versus introducing carbs, which I don't think you need to go that far. I mean, simply cycling in between, you know, caloric surplus, caloric deficit, carnivore, keto, like that's right. all clean and doesn't require right. carbs at all and still is enough of a of a stimulus to keep the body uh you know from becoming complacent um and training alone i mean that's not nutritional related but it's all symbiotic right. in nature so that has a a huge impact on your your body's ability to to you know adapt and change like the worst thing anybody could do is indefinitely stay carnivore 
indefinitely stay at a caloric deficit and indefinitely do like seven days a week of cardio. You know what I mean? Like at some point <laughs> your body's just going to burn out and you're, you're going to die. Right. You know? Right. Or you're going to want to die. Um, you know, yeah, it's, I think that we need to change things up. You know, one of the one of the approaches I have some of my clients take is, you know, if they're if they're going hardcore, like I have a program where it's kind of like a stall buster program, but it's kind of hardcore and it's a lot of tracking and it's a lot of work for that period of time. And when they're done, I'm like, don't sign up for this back to back. You have to take a break. You know, you have to give your body a break from this kind of intensity on what you're eating or, or else you're just going to start to uh, reap fewer and fewer benefits from these cycles. Um, you know, and, and, and I never, ever do carb ups as, as people might know from watching that video. Uh, but I certainly do what I call keto splurge days with people, which is, um, you know, if they've been really hardcore, you know, macros, not overeating, you know, eating a smaller amount, you know, have an, a day every now and again, or a period every now and again, where they, you know, have the fathead pizza or the whatever, where they, where they allow their body to kind of feel a little more nourished. Yeah, I 100% completely agree that it's, it's kind of dangerous to say that, though, because people's perspective of, of what is hardcore is, is oftentimes skewed. So they'll go like two days oh, yeah. at like a a reasonable caloric intake and then feel like they're being hardcore and they'll introduce like this <laughs> crazy splurge and then no progress is made and they take two steps back for every step they take forward. So right. you have to kind of take that advice to the grain of salt for sure. But I absolutely agree with you and think it's necessary. That's why I'll introduce like at the depth of a caloric, you know, deficit, I'll introduce, you know, ketogenic refeeds, which is like a, you know, 30% increase in calories and almost uh, like clockwork, those clients, will have been at a, a plateau on their weight, uh, you know, for that week and they don't introduce that refeed. And then the next couple of days, their, their weight will drop even lower because we introduced that stimulus. Um, this is a perfect segue to to talk about yeah. uh, reverse dieting because you had mentioned, you know, not staying in any one program for too long. Um, we were talking about this too when we were in person uh, there last two, two weeks ago, I guess, three weeks ago. Um, but a large portion of your clientele base is – the vast majority um, is is middle aged women who probably aren't going to be you know stepping on stage just wanting to improve their overall health, correct? Right, right, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, there. I would say my average client is a a middle ish aged woman who has either really struggled with her weight and her health since having kids, or is somebody that maybe like me has been overweight most of their life. And and I will say. I'm just going to pause and add a little side note, which is um, I am a big believer in come for the come for the weight loss, stay for the health benefits. So even though you know I talk about people wanting to lose weight, I really do believe it's a it's really is truly more about the health benefits than the weight loss. But but people really care about the weight loss, so I talk a lot about the weight loss. Yeah, yeah, I think that's um, it's kind of like the the magnetic force that draws people in, and then they see <laughs> right. what they're actually there for, and they stay. Right, um, right. But I'd love to kind of dive into because when we were talking uh, in person a couple weeks back, yeah, you know, we were talking about the importance of reverse dieting and how that demographic of clientele, in particular, are very, you know, seemingly opposed to the idea of increasing their calories, oh to yeah, lose weight and having kind of a long game approach and. I see this a lot in male clients as well, but definitely the vast majority in female clients. Um, and it, it breaks my heart too, because they're, they're 
there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of information out there on the subject matter. And there's just no. so much ignorance around reverse dieting. And these poor people, they have coaches out there that are telling them to chronically undereat and just reduce calories, reduce calories. And then they wind up screwing up their metabolism and hormones even further. Um, so I've, I've talked about this on multiple podcasts of mine, but I'm, I'm just going to keep beating it into the ground because hopefully <laughs> it keeps touching people. Um, so, so dive into that, just kind of talk about the, sure. the psychology of, of why these women are opposed to the idea of increasing calories. Well, I mean, I think there is a, you know, I talk about scarcity mindset. Um, I don't know if that's a familiar concept, but, you know, you can have an abundance mindset or a scarcity mindset. And the scarcity mindset is there is not enough to go around and there's not enough for me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like this can often affect us when we've struggled our whole life to lose weight, when weight loss has been a huge struggle um, and we start seeing progress. You like clutch that progress you cling to it you're afraid it's going to lose you're it's going to leave you like you know like you're, you're like like it's a boyfriend right like don't leave me um <laughs> the, you know when you're seeing the scale numbers going down there is at first this like euphoria like oh my gosh the scale never does that and like shock and amazement and you know happiness like it's beautiful for a while and then when and if i mean and there is a certain percentage of the population they just ride that train straight to goal weight and then those are the people that are like i don't know how to stop losing weight and everyone else hates them um you know, like, but that is a minority. Most of the people that I interact with, um, they end up, you know, having this sort of honeymoon phase where the weight loss is easy and it moves and everything's great. And then they hit a plateau. And in that plateau, what ends up happening is they start to like clutch and cling to everything that worked. This is when you'll see things like, people posting in groups, things like, you know, when I have chicken broth for three days, I drop some, you know, I drop three pounds afterward. You know, they're like, they're like trying to find patterns. They're trying yeah. to, you know, which is normal and good. That's what you want to do. You want to look for patterns, but you don't want to look for false patterns. Like, yeah, if you do nothing but drink chicken broth for three days, you won't have any food in your intestines and you will weigh less. It doesn't mean you've lost any fat, you know, like it, it's sort of like, make sure you're paying attention to what is happening and why and under not not just looking first you look for a pattern but then you have to understand what's happening what's causing that so that you can know if it's something repeatable um and so i have these people who are just deathly afraid of they they become borderline anorexic in a way because they become so afraid of losing any ground um, like I have one client who we'd worked together. She'd lost some weight. We'd stopped working together. She came back on a live that I was doing and mentioned that um, she was basically eating one egg and one piece of bacon a day because she was so afraid of of gaining weight. And, you know, I'm like, that's not okay. Your body does not want you to just eat that little every day. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I managed to get her to eat more food. And then she messaged me that she'd lost seven pounds. You know, just so for, so for some people, actually, just getting them to eat more food, they actually lose weight eating more food. Um, 
now the calorie people will get on my case here. I what I am not saying is eat more food equals more weight loss. I'm not saying that. I'm I'm not. I'm not saying more food equals more weight loss. I'm saying that chronic starvation is not good for you and can make certain metabolic processes inefficient. Or actually I should say extra efficient, which means you can survive on very little food. And, you know, our bodies are wired this way to survive on very little food if very little food is available. But the way that it's going to do that is by slowing down your metabolic processes so that you can survive on very, and it's just, it says, it's to overuse the phrase, a zero sum game. You're going to, you're just not going to get the success. And so it is one of my biggest challenges with clients to get them to accept the fact that maybe they have to take their attention off of weight loss for some period of time so that they can then re-engage with weight loss in the future in a way that is actually effective. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, I've always, I've pretty much said this, this same analogy, but I always, you know, relate this to if you're starving, basically, your body's going to do everything it can to survive. And yeah. any food that you do introduce, your body's going to be substantially more likely to harbor that and, and store it as fat because it's, it's convinced that there's just a scarcity uh, with the energy that's coming in. Um, so the only way to kind of break through that stall is to introduce enough food consistently enough to reconvince your body that food's not at a scarcity and will therefore kind of help reset things, reestablish a baseline, and your body won't be as likely to store the food that you do eat as fat. Um, and it, it's a really hard, it's a really simple concept, but it's, it's hard to get people to trust it because they're just deathly afraid of putting on a pound. Um, right. So I like to think of things in like worst case scenario uh, <laughs> situations. And it's, it's funny because like worst case scenario, I mean, that's honestly one of the main motivations I had behind doing this 6,000 calorie experiment that I just concluded was I wanted to see what would happen, you know, on, on the worst end. Because if I can get 6,000 calories and, and gain very little body fat in the grand scheme of things, you know, there there's an upper threshold. There's a ceiling, basically, just as there's a floor to what your body can metabolize with regard to your caloric intake. And I feel like, you know, people in this situation would benefit, not necessarily from eating 6,000 calories, but from eating enough that they actually are uncomfortable and actually feel like they don't want to eat anymore because they're just full and, you know, satiated. And then in doing so, realize that, hey, it didn't all get converted into body fat and I'm not losing all the hard-earned progress that I've worked for. And then when they have that psychological shift, they, they, they tend to look more at food as a fuel source and they're able to kind of put the piece of the puzzle together and recognize it is not like a negative thing. Like the worst thing that can happen is people looking at eating food as a negative thing because that's where eating disorders develop and I've been there before and I'm just passionate about not letting people get there. Right. And, and you know, the other thing is that I try and help people you know, understand is that you are not your body. Like you are in your body, you are not your body. Like people attach all their self-worth to, did the scale go up or down? Um, that if this scale went down, they're a good person. If the scale went up, they did something wrong. They were bad. Like food and weight is not a moral issue. Like full stop. Liking tasty things 
makes you normal. It doesn't make you a bad person. You know, and so I honestly think that it's not just the weight, but we've got this like mental disorder in our society. You know, you can even see it in the whole like clean eating, like clean versus dirty. Now, I definitely espouse what, you know, what people would call clean keto, which is not including a lot of junk in your, in your, in your food, but that isn't a moral thing. That is a results thing. That is an effect. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, I'm not against certain food items because they're dirty or bad. I'm against them because they don't help people be healthier. Um, but uh, I think in this sort of moralistic society that we live in, um, not, not to get political, uh, you know, oftentimes we've been raised like my mom, you know, I love her death, but she's been dieting her whole life. And she says, when I'm hungry, I feel like a better person, right? That is effed in the head, right? You're yeah. not a better person because you're hungry. Um, you know, and so a lot of this, morality has gotten wrapped up in our food. And I think one of the really important things about having a healthy, happy life with food is being able to sort of separate who you are as a person from like how you're eating. Um, I mean, I will say it feels good to accomplish goals. I'm not saying that's not true, right? Like, you know, in your life, when you accomplish goals, you feel a sense of accomplishment. You have an inner peace that you never, you won't have if you don't accomplish hard goals, right? You feel good. Like I'm not saying purpose doesn't matter or or drive or accomplishment doesn't matter, but you know, um, oh, someone is at my door. That's helpful. Um, you know, but it is important to to separate who you are as a good or bad person from like are you losing or gaining weight if that makes sense mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and, you know it's it's i mean i look at food nutrition and my physical body as as just simply like a like a vehicle of which i you know have to live my life to the best of my ability like it's simply the temple and the the infrastructure for which i can physically manifest what i have in my mind to do um so i put a lot of emphasis in that but you know, I don't define my self-worth by that. I mean, a lot of, especially in the fitness space, like a lot of the people in yeah. the fitness space, you know, they're only as good as their, you know, Photoshopped picture on Instagram, which is just <laughs> right. a sad, sad, uh, you know, reality for some people. Like, I honestly don't even post that many pictures of like me shredded. I just, I just don't. Um, so I can confidently say that my following and in, in my stroke in the keto space is not founded on my shredded glutes, which is good, you know. Um, but I think that needs to be true for for everybody. I mean, it's it's healthy and, and good for people to want to to be the best they can be, right. you know, physically, but not at the expense of how they view themselves, uh, you know, emotionally and, and psychologically. Right. Well, I mean, put your. I think what you do, what I see you doing, is like put your worth in. Did I work towards like what were my efforts? Did I work? Did I set it? Like, did I set a goal to go to the gym seven times this week, five times, or whatever that is? You know, did I did I hit a personal best in how much I lifted? You know, I think that putting attention on efforts rather than necessarily just on results, right? Mm -hmm. So I was, um, I was, I tracked every single day this week, and I, um, you know, 
was really on point with with my macro plan. But that is an, a personal achievement. Um, I got on the scale and I weighed five pounds less is a result, not an effort, right? It's a, it might be a result, but it's not, it's not something you have 100% control of, if that makes sense. But I have 100% control of the fact that I did not have a cookie this week. Yeah, I think it's kind of dangerous because like you, you're absolutely right. We live in this, this world in which, you know, things do get very political and, and self-righteous and you have to kind of think about how you're going to approach things and, and your outlook towards things. And I think, you know, everybody's perspective is so different. So what, what I view as a, a, a challenging obstacle, uh, you know, somebody else that's farther along in life than me would, would view it as, as nothing, you know? And right. so for me to, to look at something as, as very challenging and for them to think nothing of it, I mean, your, your perception is your reality, right? I mean, what one person's obstacle is cannot really be compared to or looked at differently than, than somebody else's. Um, but at the same time, you know, we live in this society in which people, like I, I'm, I've never been a fan of this whole, you know, participation award uh, right. philosophy in which everybody feels entitled uh, and deserving of this, you know, you know, award or achievement when they didn't really deserve anything. So I, I do, it's, it's kind of like both ends of the spectrum. I agree with, you know, just putting forth your effort and being rewarded upon that and knowing that, you know, you made it one step farther today and to not beat yourself up and to just keep on compounding that effort until you do reach the goal, but then also recognizing the fact that, you know, life can be hard and just because you're living doesn't mean make you a winner. Like you have to put in the effort and, and do more than just merely exist. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty harsh though. <laughs> no, no, no. But I totally agree. Like I don't, I don't, nobody get, nobody gets a medal for showing up or they shouldn't. I totally don't think that. However, I do think that inside yourself, like you have to celebrate the wins of like, I, I was, I was on point all week. I went to the gym every time I hit my personal best, you know, I worked to failure, you know, whatever those things are for you that at the end of the day, you're like, I did my very best today. Um, those kinds of moments need to be noticed now. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not to sound like an idiot that I don't, you know, cause I don't know as much about, you know, working out as you do, but if you were hitting your personal best every day and, you know, a couple months down the line, you were less defined when you looked in the mirror, you might be like, huh, what's happening? Why does A plus B not equal C? Like, why am I not seeing the manifestation of my efforts? And you can't lie to yourself there. Um, you can't, you can't put your blinders on and say, well, that ha A has nothing to do with B, you know, whatever. You know, so just the same way, like if I hit my macros and I'm doing the right thing every day and I'm like, huh, the scale isn't moving and I'm in a range where the scale should be moving, I have to be honest with myself enough to get curious to say, well, what's going on there? Why isn't, why am I not seeing the results when I'm putting in the effort? Yeah. And I think, you know, also on that point, it's important to have multiple different reference points. Like if I tell this to all my clients, like they'll oftentimes only look at the scale weight as their mm. make or break end all be all, which is like the worst thing you could do. I mean, there, there's been several times where I've been going through a, like a prep and the scale wouldn't move for, for, you know, multiple weeks. And I would be hitting everything to the T, like literally counting things to the gram and not missing a workout session. So in that environment, 
it can be incredibly discouraging. But if I only looked at the scale, I would be like, you know, just filled with self-defeat. But looking at, you know, pictures, measurements, uh, you know, strength, uh, body fat percentage, like there's so many different variables that can be changed uh, and can be changing that, you know, the more reference points you give yourself, the more, the more likelihood of of you sticking to any given plan because you can find success in something. Right. I mean, I like you don't wear your weight on your forehead, right? Like there's not a number printed on your forehead. So if, you know, we all attach so much to what we weigh, but quite honestly, I would rather weigh 300 pounds and fit in a size six than, you know, the reverse, (laughs) you know, um, not that I think that's possible, but you know, like we use the scale weight as a reference. Um, And so much, uh, so many other things matter. Like how you're fitting in your clothes, how you feel like you look, what what you can do. Like when I was, you know, approaching 300 pounds, I could not walk up a hill. I can now mm-hmm. walk up a hill, which I mean, it's it's the little things. Can I tie my shoes without getting winded? You know, we all have different goals. Your goal is not my goal. We shouldn't compare ourselves to other people, but you always want to compare yourself to yourself. Like right. where am I now versus where where I was? and and look at that um but yeah i think it's important to look at multiple uh measures of success i'm I'm curious uh on on more of a personal you said that you're going to be ramping up your training uh going forward what what is that going to look like and what's the motivation behind behind doing that and what's what's the reasoning for not having focused more on that in the past Mostly uh, just a surplus of laziness would be my best uh, (laughs) explanation. Um, I, um, well, you know, once upon a time in my history, I really loved going to the gym. Um, There was a period of time where I I really enjoyed that. I don't really enjoy cardio for the most part, um, but I do enjoy lifting weights. And um, I have a opinion that lifting weights is one of the very best things you can do for your body. You know, this opinion is backed up by a lot of evidence. Um, mm-hmm. However, uh, on the flip side, um, I am a seeker of comfort. And so in any given moment, the sofa looks really appealing. And, you know, there's always a project to do. And, you know, as a, as a, I mean, I own a small business, right? So, as a business owner, there's always a project to work on. There's always something you can convince yourself needs your attention right now. Um, and you can put your own goals on the back burner. And so, you know, I don't necessarily have a goal of being in a figure competition. I have a goal of not getting sarcopenic as I age. You know, I mm-hmm. have, and I know as you get into your 40s, it's harder and harder to put on muscle for a lot of people. And I am now in my 40s and, you know, time is a waste in in terms of uh, gaining muscle mass. And I have a strong belief that you will be a healthier old person with a good amount of muscle mass. Uh, Now, from a aesthetic perspective, I just also think people who lift weights look better. Um, And so uh, I'm not opposed to that either. I'm excited for you. Like we were talking about this, um, you know, when I was there uh, with, with you and Dr. Barry, and he's he's going to start working out too. And one point that he made is, you know, people like he just turned fifty, and people yeah. have this 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 idea that you know you get at a certain age, whether it be forty or fifty or sixty, 
um, or whatever it is that it's just it it becomes so much harder to to build muscle that it almost becomes not worth building the muscle. But I don't know, I'm excited for you and him to both you know dive into that uh, you know full rate of building muscle because I think you'll find you'll be pleasantly surprised how much muscle you can build at that age, and then it'll be cool because you'll become you know a billboard for people of the same age that are having that battle in their mind right. of whether or not they should put forth that effort. Uh, and the answer is 100% absolutely put forth the effort because it makes a compounding effect. It has a compounding effect on your health going forward. Right. And I, you know, I do DEXA scans every once in a while and I know what my lean body mass is and it's fine. Like I'm not like, but then I will work with it can always be better. So that's, you know, always, always get better. Um, but when I look at some of my clients who come to me who are 60 year old women who get, who get a DEXA scan and they have like, I don't know, 30% less, uh, muscle or lean body mass. That's the word I'm trying to say. Uh, mm -hmm. then, then most other people I would think to be about average for their age, you know, I'll get people who have 65 pounds of lean body mass. And I'm like, how is that even possible? Like, what is happening? What has happened? And, you know, it's this it's this chronic effect of dieting that, that they were, you know, dieting on the sad caloric restricted approach. And over the years, just every time they went on a diet, lost lean body mass. And it scares me. Um, you know, I feel bad for these people and my advice to them is like, get into the gym. You need to get into the gym. Um, but I'm, you know, if I'm not going to walk the walk, I shouldn't talk the talk. So I need to get myself into the gym too. No, no. I'm, I mean, I've got full faith in you. I have no doubt that you'll, that you'll do it, but you're absolutely right. You know, it is a scary, it's a scary equation when, you know, you have very little lean body mass, you're overweight, you're getting older and you're calorically depleted. I mean, that is like the perfect storm right there. Oh, it totally is. I'll see these women and I'll see their like, they'll tell me their weight. And I'm like, that is an appropriate-ish. I mean, you know, we all have different looks and whatever, but, you know, they'll tell me their height and their weight. And I'll be like, well, you should probably be somewhat, you know, average size then. And then I'll find out that they have, you know, 60% body fat at mm -hmm. an appropriate weight, which means their lean body mass is like in the basement and and I feel I feel horrible for these people because they're just they're really gonna have to I mean I'm glad they're approaching the topic but I also know that that is very depressing to find that out right yeah yeah but I don't know I think the more people that I don't know, like in the past, weight training was just considered this thing that jocks do like like this muscle bound freaks but I mean, whatever your sport is, just simply stimulating the muscle, you're going to have yeah. you know enormous benefits from. Um, and I think the more we publicize that and and illustrate how you know actually weight training, resistance training can be fun and, and beneficial to you no matter what age uh, you're you're at, yeah. I think it'll you know start to tap into the the audience more and more, which should be good. Yeah, absolutely. You can enjoy weightlifting. <laughs> I'm going to come to to the Bay Area and um, we'll have to do some weightlifting. I'll put you through a workout. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm taking a, a total uh, left turn here. Um, yeah. But I want to dive into your cooking because you, you said that you, oh, were, yeah. you were carnivore a uh, large part of the time, but you also enjoy and love to cook uh, ketogenic meals. And you've also touched on the fact that you 
uh, perform best when you keep the carbs very low compared to traditional keto eating of under yeah. 50 grams. So dive into the recipes and kind of what you've done there. Well, I mean, so one of the things that I think is super important, and I this is my rule for life, and it's my rule for all children in my presence as well, you never have to eat things that you don't like. I think there is no reason to eat things you do not like. I think that everyone can eat a a, a diet that they feel is delicious. Now, can you eat everything you want to eat? No. There are certain things that I like that are no longer in my repertoire, um, like, you know, traditional pastries, right? Those are things I no longer eat. But can I can I get those base flavors? Can I get, you know, something sweet, something cinnamony? Can I get like if I have a craving, can I can I meet it without doing it in a way that is going to ultimately kill me? Yes, I can find ways to incorporate textures and flavors um, and just deliciousness into keto cooking and into keto cooking in a way that works for me. You know, I've spent over two years now eating less than 20 grams of carbs a day. Um, and, and, and one of the things I often see people getting into keto and they're like, this is impossible. I can't get my carbs that low. It's a new, it's a completely new frame of mind. Um, because in the traditional way of eating, especially women, I think, we were taught, you know, fill your plate with vegetables so that you aren't going to eat as much of the other things. You know, volume is good. And you kind of have to put on a new mindset. Um, and so I just play in the kitchen a lot. And I play with flavor and I play with different types of foods and I research different types of foods about, you know, how do we keep nutrient density fairly high while also keeping these various carbs low. And so um, I just do a lot of experimentation. Some of it is a disaster, but usually I eventually learn something from that and then get to a place where I'm very happy and other people are very happy with what I've created. So, you know, in my coaching programs, I work with people, I give them food plans and those food plans include really delicious meals because I just honestly think, yes, there are people that are like, I don't have to like what I eat. I'm fine. I'm just just, I, just nutrition. But I just think there are a lot of people like me who, if it isn't kind of fun and tasty, they're going to get bored. Yeah, I think, you know, oftentimes, or at least for me, but I've also noticed this in, in most of the other keto population, I think, is they, they get into keto. The first thing they want to do is, is find as many keto lookalike carb meals and desserts that they can find. So they do that, and that's great because, like I said earlier, you know that, that's still an improvement upon what their diet used to be. So they still see those initial improvements, but then you know they hit that plateau, and it's oftentimes that they need to phase out those, you know, look-alike dessert meals. And honestly, I mean, those look-alike dessert meals are often, you know, marketed as being keto-friendly, but they're not really keto-friendly. I mean, they're they're better than you know grains and sugars, but right. they still have way too many sweeteners in there. Um, and they're still having a lot of ingredients that are going to impact the the insulin, uh, you know, response and the and the glucose and whatnot. Um, but to to see you, you know, like when we were there, you made this uh, tiramisu, and it was absolutely delicious, and it satisfied a sweet, you know, craving that I haven't had in forever. Um, but the the best part about it was after we got done eating it, I didn't I didn't feel bad. I didn't feel like I'd kind of cheated at all, which I oftentimes do feel with most ketogenic, you know, 
dessert menus because they, they have like a whole bunch of almond flour in there. They just have a bunch of stuff that's just not really optimal. When you can make a dessert that's keto friendly and optimal, you're on a whole other level. Right. And and that's one of the things that I've put a lot of time and energy into is one, you know, because I struggle, you know, you look and you see all of these great keto recipes on the internet, right? Where you're, I read it and I'm like, I can't eat that, you know, like, cause it'll be like my entire day's carbs in a teeny square of some dessert. And I'm like, that's not going to work. Um, and so I take a couple of approaches with my desserts. I still make desserts. I still suggest desserts to people. I don't suggest them every day. Um, uh, you know, maybe uh, unless you're like, that's the only way I'm going to stay. I think you have to put your focus on a goal. If you're telling me the only way I'm going to stay keto is to have a dessert every day and my number one goal is to stay keto, well, okay, we can meet that goal. But if you're telling me, okay, but my number one goal is to uh, optimize my insulin level and and drop it and get to, you know, uh, fasting insulin of 4.6 or below. Like if you tell me that, I'm going to be like, all right, we're going to have to make some changes um, uh, mm -hmm. that don't include cupcake breakfasts. Um, and so knowing what your goals are really matter to me. And if, you're, if your goal is to see more significant weight loss health improvements, lower insulin, those kinds of things. Yeah, we're going to have to really take a new approach to your relationship with desserts. But that doesn't mean maybe for most people, for some it might, but for most people eliminating them completely. But as an example, that tiramisu I made um, for you guys, um, I would suggest that most people would have found it not very sweet at all because I go really light on sweeteners because, I mean, that thing was full of egg yolks and cream and mascarpone, like super indulgent, rich fat sources. And so mm -hmm. I want people to connect to a feeling of like the mouthfeel and the luxury of this like sumptuous dessert. And, but it, that doesn't have to mean that it's super carby or um, super sweet. Like how do we really, can you taste the vanilla? You know, we hijack our taste buds with sugar or sugar substitutes so often. I mean, because that's what the SAD diet does, that we lose subtlety. And you can bring back like a lot of subtle flavors that are just as pleasurable, if not more so, than just kind of getting hit in the face with a fistful of sugar. Yeah. For me, I mean, the longer I've stayed in ketosis, strict ketosis, the less I've craved uh, you know, those, those dessert meals. And then I, yeah. I pretty much went through a, a couple months where I cut out all sweeteners, you know, completely. And then I craved zero, zero sugars or sweeteners at all, which was, you know, beneficial. Um, but now I've, I've reintroduced them. Like I'll have like a, like a Zevia, you know, drink or something simple like that. Um, but I don't want to have desserts very often, but on occasions like that, when I do, you know, once in a blue moon, I appreciate it a lot more, but then I also, can know that it's not going to really negatively impact my overall goals because you made it so cleanly compared to other keto desserts. Um, right. But, you know, I think, I think you're absolutely right. There's, there's no reason why anybody that, that wants to feel and perform better should ever just go off the rails completely and have a carb based meal. Like I, especially this time of year with all the holidays, um, I get so sick of hearing people's excuses about, you know, they went to the families, they just want to enjoy it, yada, yada, yada. And I get wanting to spend time with your family, but if you're with your family, the priority should be on the family, not the food on the table. And there's no reason why you have to breach 
your long-term health goals for this minuscule moment in time to have a carb-based meal. I mean, you can have a keto look-alike meal that right. does not get you that far off track and can pretty much satisfy those those cravings. Right. And and you know, I'm I'm actually pro like let's not track on Christmas. You know, like I'm like, ah, you know, just make keto food and just eat and just don't. You know, like I do think sometimes I track almost every day, but I think, you know, I think it's like I'm not probably not going to track on Christmas. And if I ha if I end up with 25 total carbs, like I'm not going to freak out. Um but I certainly think there's no reason not to eat keto. Um, you right. know what your Aunt Ida's pie tasted like. You had it for, you know, 18 years in a row. Um, what is more interesting to me is to think, what did I love about that lemon meringue pie she made? And how can I make it keto so that I can eat it without the waking up the next day feeling like, oh, God, what did I do? Um, you know, without that feeling. And see, I, I'm a very... I'm an extremist. So I have to kind of like guard what I say because I know a lot of people just have a different perspective on things than me. But a lot of people will come to me with the the reasoning that turning down, you know, that pie from Aunt Ida that you've had for 18 years in a row would just totally break her heart. And for me, I, I translate that to, look, your Aunt Ida should care more about you than the food that you put in your mouth in the first place. And if if that's really what your relationship is founded on, then there, there, there's bigger underlying issues. But to me, it's just, I don't know, like people are so quick to throw away what they know to be the right decision for this momentary, you know, just, I don't know, I don't even know what to describe. It just pisses me off thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, this indulgence. And it's like, I don't know, I don't understand human psychology in that sense. Or maybe I'm just a freaking machine. I don't know. But I feel like anybody has the capability to recognize right from wrong and they don't have to justify wrong because because it's what they've always done, because what they've always done hasn't gotten them to where they want to be in the first place. Right. I mean, I think this is an important point. It's, and it's it's kind of a deep one, actually. I think people have horrible boundaries. Uh, people are terrible at boundaries. Um, but I want what I want people to think about in that moment that they think I can't offend Aunt Ida is um, are Aunt Ida's feelings more important than your health? Um, because they're not. And if you actually said to Aunt Ida, Aunt Ida, I love you and your pie is amazing. It is, it is, it is super wonderful. I love it. And because of some health concerns I have, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna end up not being good for me. And I'm so sorry. Like, I feel bad not eating it, but I just, I know you care about me more than you care if I got to try your pie again this year. I know your love for me is deeper than if I, if I, I and I'm, I'm afraid of offending you, you know, but I, I don't, I know, I know you love me and you want the best for me. And, and maybe you don't have that conversation out loud. Maybe you have it in your head. And if, if the response is that Aunt Ida won't care, then, then you shouldn't worry about hurting Aunt Ida's feelings. Because if it's true that Aunt Ida cares more about some validation that you liked her pie, then she cares that you are a healthy, happy individual, then you shouldn't worry about what Aunt Ida thinks. Yeah. And see, some people will hear us talking right now and they'll be thinking like, they're listening to this podcast right now and they're thinking in their head, uh, just eat the damn pie. It's just one moment. Get over it. You're making a too big of a deal of this. But that's you're missing the point right. if you think that way. Because I mean, this is it's, it's a principle thing. And 
I know, I mean, human psychology is 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 pretty clear in the fact that the moment you give in to that, it becomes much easier to give in to that going forward. Going back to the whole perspective thing, like when you change your perspective, it becomes significantly easier to to keep going down one path or the other. So make it a good path that brings you closer to your goal as opposed to away from your goal. And I, I could rant on this <laughs> mindset thing all day long. No, no, but. I agree because the damage is not so much the eating of the pie right? Like the damage is not the sugar, calories, whatever for most people. Now that's not true for some people. That is like a heart attack waiting to happen because they were on the verge of some, you know, health crisis they didn't know about. But for the average person, the actual ingestion of the pie is, is not the primary damage. The primary damage is psychological. The primary damage is yeah, you absolutely. violating your own boundaries. And once you violate those, once you cheat, once you, you know, go out and, and have that beer when you said you weren't going to drink, once you violate that inner boundary you've created, you are now a cheater. Your identity has switched um, from, and, and that yeah. is the bigger deal to me. Completely agree. And that, that transcends itself, you know, into every single aspect of your life, much more so than just the nutritional aspect. But I mean, that transcends itself into your relationships, your your career path. I mean, your training, everything. So for me, being the the extremist that I am, like I, I have a goal, I, I create those boundaries, and then I just flip a switch, and there's then it becomes like a non negotiable. Like it's literally not even in my vocabulary anymore to cheat on that goal. I totally get that. Not everyone is as extreme. Like you and I are extreme in different ways. I'm I'm like, I'm like the bunny extreme, but like. <laughs> like a lot fluffier and 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 softer around thing, uh, the edges, but uh, but I'm also, but I know I'm an abstainer. I'm somebody that needs firm boundaries, or else it's just I'm off to the races and everything's a mess. Um, and so knowing your personality, like okay, so can some people have fat pie at Christmas? Maybe, but isn't it more interesting to see what happens if you don't? To challenge your belief in yourself, to challenge who you are, to you know, yeah. You know, am, are you a bad person if you have the pie? No, you're not a bad person for those things. But who would you be if you didn't? What could you, if you had that commitment, yes. if you had that follow through, if you had, you know, it, it put it on for a second, put that image of who you could be on the 26th of December on for a second, waking up that morning and saying, huh. I have never done that before. I have never said no. I have never said no to that pie. I have never said no to the mashed potatoes. And now I'm a new person. I am a person that can put my goals ahead of my momentary pleasure. I like it. See, <laughs> I like the way you think about things because you portray that mentality very vividly and it just seems much more obtainable. Like I'm, ah, I like, I like you, you too. Kim, you're cool. <laughs> No, for real though, the, to to bring this all full circle, um, you yeah. you talking about we're talking about the recipes that you have in very low carb. Those are a great tool because it allows people that have these kind of blurred edged boundaries to be able to to make those those long term goals that much more sustainable and achievable because they don't have to. I don't want to say try as hard, but it just becomes more. It just it just becomes easier to hit the goals and not overstep those boundaries because they have a, a very viable, uh, you know, response or option right in front of them. Yeah, I mean, for me, that's part of the reason I create recipe books and I create meal plans is I want to help you get the muscle memory, 
right? If I show you, because if people are like, I, there is no way to do this 20 grams of carbs, it's just not possible. And then I'm like, look, here are some meals where it's done for you and just make this thing. And then you make those for a while and then it becomes muscle memory. You now know how to make these kind of meals. And so I, I find that very helpful for people. I'm willing to do some of the work for you. You got to do the follow through, but I will get you to the starting line. I love it. I love it. Well, where can people find out more about you and these recipes and just kind of see what all you have going on and, and, and follow in with you and, and make sure that you're you're training hardcore 2019. Right? You're like, what's up, Kim? You gone to the gym this week? Um, no, don't, don't do that. Don't do, don't do that. Um, I, um, I am on the interwebs at theketonist.com. That's T-H-E-K-E-T-O-N-I-S-T. Uh, com. And you can, that's my website and you can find me there. You can message me there. Uh, I'm also on Instagram and Twitter under that same uh, handle, The Katonist. Uh, I have a YouTube channel, but you can get that link from my, uh, from my website. Um, so that's probably the best way to find me. I'm also on, I have a Facebook page, The Katonist as well. Awesome. I'll link out to all those, make it easy for people to find you. And you've got some things coming up that you want to Talk about that a lot. We're just gonna like let let the temptation. Sure. Well, I can I can tell people that this is it's a it's a bit of a pro uh, project in progress. But I'm coming up with it doesn't even have quite a name yet. Right now, the working title is Fifty Under Five. So a um, a recipe book entirely around very very low carb recipes uh, under five grams of total carbs, um, and that'll be a project available in the in the new year. So if you're curious about that, if you subscribe to my newsletter on my website, I will give you guys updates on when that's coming or if it's out. I'll also let Robert know so he can let people know. Um, and then we can go from there. Awesome. I'm super excited about that one because unlike other recipes that are, that they advertise, you know, super ultra low carb, it's like for a toothpick sized portion of a, right. of a meal. <laughs> <laughs> not not yeah. good. No bueno. No bueno. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll definitely uh, be looking forward to that when it comes out. And I'll be using those recipes myself. Sounds good, Robert. Absolutely. Well, Cam, it has been an absolute pleasure. I've always enjoyed our conversations. Uh, this one is no different. I'll have to get you back on again because I want to, I want to talk about more of the specifics on some stuff. And w when your recipe book comes out, we'll have to sure. brush up on, on that when it comes out for sure. But uh, until then, it's, it's been a pleasure. And I'm I look forward to keeping in touch. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. You bet. Have a good one.